Welcome to the Take A Seat Podcast. This podcast brings awareness to disability sports and supports. We are talking to experts and athletes with a disability from around the world. Before we get stuck into this episode, we want to say a massive thank you to our sponsor, the Suncoast Spinners. The Suncoast Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby, and more. Follow Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, and find out more about them at suncoastspinners.com.au. All right, so Cameron, episode, what are we now? Seven? Episode seven, James, episode seven. It's kind of fun. Uh, it feels it feels uh, like we're in here almost every day now. We were in here yesterday. We recorded with Kimberly. Yeah, Kimberly Alchemy. So she was our first international guest. You, you had me fooled. I thought we were going going overseas, but no, we just we just hooked up the Zoom. So yeah, I don't have that much money in the bank account for a plane ticket for you and I to go overseas. <laughs> well, well, we'll work on that one. So instead of going overseas, we're heading down south. And who have we got on today? So we have Carol Cook on today, and we've done a bit of fact checking, and we're making sure that everything is correct. Uh, qualifier for the Canadian swimming team in 1980, but the Canadian side didn't actually go to, over to the games. They boycotted, uh, which meant that we didn't get to go over with that. Then we got a qualifier for the 2006 Commonwealth Games as a para-athlete uh, after some diagnosis. Moved to Australia in 1993 to travel around and then 1994 moved here permanently for her husband. And since then, got diagnosed in 1998 with multiple sclerosis. Moving into para Sports. She then went into the 2005 Master Swimming Championships and did some power rowing. That's it. Well, actually, what it was, uh, I'm sure we'll dive into it with Carol in just a moment. But uh, she was she was invited to a, a testing clinic, sort of a para para swimming testing. I think it was. We'll, we'll get her in. We'll get her in, and she'll be able to clarify that for us. But I think they they found out that she was uh, a bit for rowing, and she gave that for a bit of a crack. So she switched switched from swimming to rowing, and then and then from there, she's now world known as a paracycler. Yeah, paracycler. So nine-time world champion with five silvers, three-time Paralympic gold medalist, one silver, and 22 national championships in paracycling. Like, that's unreal. And then that's without even throwing in two books on just top and motivational speaker. That's enough of us talking about it. Let's get her on. Carol, we'd like to welcome you to take a seat with us on the Take a Seat Project. Oh, thanks, James and Cameron. It's great to be with you today. No worries. I'm, I'm sure we, we probably didn't do as much justice as we wanted to with that, in that bio. Uh, but what I really wanted to, to strike a question, the first question with you is that um, Cameron said that you, you really sort of, uh, probably using a bit more of an exaggerated word here, but fell in love with our podcast uh, when, when we had the episode on, with Rob. Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I, it's funny when you, I just heard you say that you had your first international guest on yesterday. Yeah. Well, now you've yeah. got your kind of second, you know, like I'm, I'm not Australian born, I'm Canadian born and, and I actually have dual citizenship. So you kind of got your second international well, guest we'll, on. We'll today. take that. We'll take that as a win any day. <laughs> just thought I'd throw that one in there for you. Yes. No, love it. So why were you so appealed to our second, uh, second episode with Rob? Um, look, I just think it's really, really good what you guys are doing. You know, it's, it's so important to get, um, our voices out there and, and teach not only people with living with a disability or a chronic illness that, you know, life isn't over and there's so much stuff that you can go out and try, 
And, but also teach people who don't live with a disability that, you know, we're not much different than everybody else. We just kind of do things a bit differently. You know, we're, we're, we're just normal people. And so I think it's just, just so good what you're doing. It's great. And the fact that neither one of you live with a disability is even better that you are putting a focus on this. It, so, yeah, it's, you know, from me, yeah. thank you. No, no, no worries at all. I mean, when I, when I look back at Rob's episode, you know, there was a the one topic that came up and it was sort of Rob's perceptions of being in a wheelchair and he sort of explained the story of uh, when he had to go to the Elton John concert, I think it was, with his partner that they'd booked for, for some time and he got there and he, and he had to go in a wheelchair. And for him, that was sort of the sort of lowest that he could get to um, at that point in time. His perception of being in a wheelchair was, was so far lesser than himself and sort of going through this change of identity. And when it comes down to, you know, we are all people, like we just do things differently. There's, there's realistically, like Rob was just going to watch the show and he did in, in one fashion or another, but like realistically, we're just trying to go about our lives as people. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, once, when I was diagnosed with MS, I always swore that I would never use a wheelchair. I would never you know, use a walking stick or never use something that was going to make me look like I had a disability. And funny enough, when I had to use a wheelchair, it was like either use it or completely lose your independence and stay in your house, you know, and not do anything. So it was kind of like, okay, this is because I used to think it would be giving in to the disease. And then I learned that it wasn't, certainly wasn't giving in. It was actually living yeah, and, and just yeah. being able to do what you wanted to do, just doing it slightly different. I absolutely love that. James and I have pretty much just given each other a high five here on the couch yeah. because that's exactly <laughs> what we want, that you are now living. It doesn't matter what the disability is or that there's no limitation. It's just get out there and, and go for it. And really, at the end of the day, it's the way that people – uh, as Rob says in his episode, is snicker behind your back and what they say, we need to get rid of that. We need to change the mentality that people have to, no, we're we're still living independently. We're getting around. We're just using a mobility to aid or whatever, and we're just, we're, we're living our life. Yeah, sure. Well, MS, so, so people understand, I, everybody's heard of multiple sclerosis or MS, but nobody seems to know really what it is, but it's a disease of the central nervous system. So it can affect anything that your nervous system runs, which is your entire body, obviously. So my, my body thinks, my immune system thinks that there's something wrong with the myelin, which is the fatty substance that covers the nerves um, and, and lets the messages go through your nerves um, safely. And so my body thinks there's something wrong with that myelin, so it attacks it and makes these little breaks um, along a nerve. That's the multiple and sclerosis is Greek for scarring. So that's those little breaks of the myelin. And so when a message gets to the to that break, it kind of stops and it goes, oh, it's not safe to pass. Now it might slowly get across or it might stop completely. I'm lucky that I have relapsing and remitting MS, which means that my body can attack the myelin, but my myelin can still rebuild itself. So I might have issues for um, you know, a day, it might be issues for a couple months. Like there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to how long that myelin will take to rebuild, but it can be anything. So like you said, when I, when I ended up with balance issues, I would walk down our hallway. We have a Victorian terrace house. So it's a really long hallway. 
And I literally would be like a ping pong ball and I would lose my balance and bounce from side to side, like hitting the wall. Like it was just, I looked drunk actually. Um, I'm really good at a party because I cannot drink anything and look like I'm having a really good time. Um, so that was one issue. Fatigue is massive. So there's times where I could sleep for eight hours and wake up and still feel like I haven't been to sleep. My body feels like it's part of the bed, that there's two tons of concrete on me. I'm so fatigued that I can't get up. Um, the other thing is um, when I first was diagnosed, it affected my eyes. So I ended up with double vision. Um, my eyes felt like they were shaking side to side. It was like being um, constantly seasick. So the balance plus the eyes shaking was just horrible. So my balance is still bad. My eyes uh, have, you know, reverted to, to what they were before. Um, and I do deal with fatigue, but I, I put things in place so that I make sure I have like a nana nap in the afternoon if I need it. Whereas before I would like, I'm going to go, I'm going to push through. I need to push through and I need to do this. But there's times now I just go, yep, I can't. I got to just wait. Um, I live with constant neuro pain in my feet. So the bottom of my feet are, um, it's almost like when your feet, when something on you goes to sleep and you get that pins and needles, except mine on the bottom of my feet feel hot and they're constantly there 24 seven. If I get tired or my internal core body temperature goes up, those pins and needles get hotter and it gets to the point where you feel like you're walking on coals. And I know I've, I, after a race in Austria once, um, my feet were so bad. I was in tears when I crossed the finish line and I turned to the coach and I'm like, get my shoes off. Not that that's going to make it any better, but just that enclosure makes it feel horrible. Um, the other things that I guess people don't see, um, are I, I have tinnitus so that means I've got constant ringing in my ears. Um, and that's because one of the nerves has damaged and, and the myelin's never righted itself. So it's, it's still damaged. And so that won't go away. Um, and the other things you don't see, batter and bowel issues. Um, I had um, a lesion on, this, on the, the nerve that, that works the large intestine. And I ended up well, way back now, I guess it would have been about 2001, I ended up with a colostomy bag uh, or an ileostomy bag, sorry, ileostomy, because my large bowel stopped working. Um, a couple years later, then, you know, I ended up with diversional colitis is what they called it. And so they ended up taking my entire loud, large bowel out. So those are the, and, and bladder stuff, those are the things that most people won't talk about because well, you're not going to, are you? You're not going to go out in public and say, yeah, I have a problem with my bowel. Um, but those are the things that people don't see that I deal with on a daily basis. Um, and if I get tired or, again, hot, I'm very heat intolerant. Great, great country to live in. Probably the best place to live is Melbourne or probably Tassie. In fact, people with um, MS if you look at worldwide, the people that the, the most people that get diagnosed live farther away from the equator than people who live closer to the equator. So if you look at Australia, your per capita diagnosis are, is more in Tasmania than it would be in Queensland. So they know that there's some kind of environmental factor because there's no, nobody knows why it happens. Really interesting, yeah. um, and yeah. obviously there's no cure yet. 
But the farther away from the equator live, you live, the more chance you have of being diagnosed with MS, which is just bizarre and we're heat intolerant. So once my core body temperature goes up, all my symptoms get worse. So I'll get pins and needles in my hands or I can't feel my fingers um, or I get more fatigued. So yeah, those are the ones I deal with. Um, In the past, I've had relapses where I've become basically a quadriplegic. I have to learn to use my arms and legs again, just depending Mm -hmm. on where my body attacks that nerve in in the nerve system. So yes, so much. Can you talk talk us through your, uh, your, your swimming pathway in Australia? So you, you moved over, uh, so you came over in 1993, you traveled a year, and then you met your husband-to-be a year later in 1994? No, I, well, I actually met him in um, 93. So I, I, I was a police officer in Canada, and I was a bit jaded. I didn't know whether I wanted to keep continuing doing that job. So I took a year leave of absence, and I came over to travel, and I tell you, I had the best year ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had an old 76 Ford Falcon uh, dual fuel. I had LPG and petrol. Oh yeah. And, uh, I drove 37 and a half thousand kilometers around the country. It was, uh, it was just awesome. And, um, met so many people. It was just amazing. I came back to Melbourne where I had my home base and, uh, went to the local North Q football club and knew nothing about Aussie rules football, but just looked at it as a game where people, guys went out in the field and crunched each other. You know, it was hilarious. (laughs) Um, And I was in this football club and this guy walked in and I'm thinking, does this guy realize he's in the city? Cause he had a dry as a bone on. It was winter. It was cold and wet. And, you know, he looked like he'd just left his horse somewhere and come into the club. And it turned out to be the man I was going to marry. (laughs) I have a a question to ask about when, when you met him, did he have the handle mustache? Oh my God. Yes, he did. (laughs) He had a, he had a really, really long, not, not like a handlebar, but really long mustache that went down to the bottom of his chin. I absolutely love that because I saw it on one of the, one of the articles I was reading on ABC and I just thought that has got to be the classic Aussie look. Oh, look. It looked almost like he almost had a, had a mullet as well. No, no, he had really long hair, really, really long, um, like curly, full on curly, thick, long hair. Um, and when he walked into the club, he had his dry as a bone on and his Akubra and his Blundstones, you know, and I just looked at my friend and like, I literally said to him, where'd this guy leave his horse? You know, we're in queue, we're in the city. Yeah. <laughs> so he swept you just clean off your feet from that moment. And there was no looking back. It was just love at first sight. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but it, um, it, it, <laughs> it probably, um, I think I was more like intrigued by this this man who walked in like we're in a city and he looks like you know the man from snowy river type thing um and um yeah it wasn't long before he swept me off my feet but but my year ended like my year leave of absence ended in november of 93 and i had to actually go back to work which was I, I didn't, I realized I didn't want to be a police officer anymore, but I had no money left. I had nothing, like I had to go back and, and earn some dough. And um, we traveled, Russ and I traveled back and forth for about um, eight months and, and he proposed. And yeah, a couple months later, I, I left the force and moved down here in 94. So from moving and leaving your job over in Canada, how did you get into this Paralympic 
expertise career? Like, oh God, sometimes I wonder. Um, no, I was still swimming. I swam in um, Fitzroy as a master swimmer. And, you know, met a whole bunch of people. And in 2004, and now, of course, I was diagnosed. But in, And I was still swimming. I was still doing master swimming. Not very good, but I was trying. And in 2005, um, the World Masters Games, funny enough, were back in Canada. And for me, it was just an excuse to go back and see family. But the other good thing was that the, for the first time ever, they had paraclassifications in swimming and athletics at a master's level. So I found, I, I found out how to get classified and I actually got classified as a swimmer, as an S10 swimmer. And so I went over and, and competed at the World Games as a, as a paraswimmer and did really, really well. Um, not that there were heaps of people doing it, but you know, I came home with a few gold medals. and A few gold medals. My understanding, four gold medals and a silver? Yeah, so- Something like that. I, I honestly, I honestly can't <laughs> just remember. Just- Master swimming starts at the age of 25. And at the time I was 45. And I don't know if Paralympics, well, they were Australian Paralympic Committee at the time, known as that. Um, I don't think they realized how old I was. And I ended up getting an email saying, oh, come to a talent search day. And I'm reading this thing. I'm thinking, talent search day? My God, that's usually for kids, isn't it? You know, like kids are early 20s. And I was 45. And so I sent, a me- I sent an email back to the gentleman. It was Tim Matthews from, from Paralympics Australia who had sent me the email. And I said, well, I'll come, but do you have any idea how old I am? And he replied to me and said, no, nope, doesn't matter. Come along. And when I showed up, when I showed up, there was all these parents there with their kids, right? And they're looking at me like, where's her kid? And I'm like, hey, I'm here for the testing. So that day I ended up being 24 years older than the oldest person who was there um, doing the testing. And so I went through it all with the kids. And yeah, a couple of weeks later, I got a letter saying, we want you to take up the sport of rowing because it's new. In So this was 2000, um, the end of 2005. And they said, oh, it's a new new sport in the Paralympics in Beijing in 2008. And I thought, wow, okay, well, I'll try and take up rowing. And it, it took me probably six months to find a club who wanted to let me give it a go because I made the mistake of calling these rowing clubs and saying, I have a slight disability. I was just using a walking stick at the time. And that word disability, like they just went, nah, can't do it. Too hard. It wasn't about finding a way around it or even asking me what my slight disability was. They just went, they heard that word and they went, nope, sorry, we can't cater for you. Um, So it took me ages. And I finally found a club in Melbourne, the Yarra Yarra Rowing Club. And when I called them and said that, they said, yeah, so do you think you can get in the boat? And I said, yeah, I think I can. You might have to help me get out of the boat. They said, okay, come on down. And it was through them that I did a learn to row course about six months later. And, um, yeah. And then right after doing the course and doing about two weeks of rowing, I had this major relapse where, yeah, I lost the use of my arms and legs in 2006. And it was like another six months before I actually got back there and back in the boat. Um, yeah. So I started back rowing in, in December, 2006. I was going to ask on that one. Um, when you're making those phone calls to the different rowing clubs and that, why did you outline that you had a disability to them in the first place? Like, 
did you feel as though you wanted to be safer and people understood that you did have a disability or was there a particular reason why you outlined that to them straight up? Well, I think that if I hadn't and I'd shown up using a walking stick, they might have gone, whoa, hang on a minute. So I'm I'm always about being honest up front. Um, and, you know, I think now, and, and, I, and I think that I, I hope within the rowing community, I was the start to them being more acceptable of people learning to row if they have a disability, because there are a lot more clubs now that are very accepting of anybody coming to try and row. And it certainly wasn't like that when I started, but it's certainly changed a lot. And, you know, it, it shouldn't, it, even if you're in a chair, it shouldn't preclude you from rowing because there is a category where, you know, people who are in chairs row. And so at least we were able to get that going um, once I was in a club. Is it the same sort of feeling or the same sort of culture that was in Yarra Yarra Rowing Club that you now find in the St Kilda Cycling Club, that sort of inclusive nature where it doesn't really matter at all if you have a disability or not, but there's a way of doing it together? Yeah, definitely. Um, St Kilda Cycling Club are probably the most inclusive club that um, I've been involved with. The first club, because um, you, your listeners won't know, I, I don't ride a two-wheel bike. I ride a trike, a tricycle. And I <laughs> I like to say it's like a little kid's trike on steroids. Just don't tell the drug testers that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a normal bike. And where the back wheel would normally be, there's, a, there's an axle that fits across. And I've got two wheels just because of my balance. Um, so when I'm out riding, man, I still get stupid comments from stupid grown men. Um, about being on a tricycle. But um, when I first started riding, I joined another club, and I, I won't name them, um, because there was another para rider there, a paracyclist. And they had never seen a trike. Well, I'm the only female trike rider competing in the country. So right now, we've got a couple others, but they've stopped competing. And they're up in New South Wales. So when people, when I went to the club and I said to them, I want to, I want to race in the, in the crits, they were like, oh my God, what do we do? So they put me with the kids. So they put me with the nine to 12 year olds and wow. gave me all kinds wow. of rules, even though I'd paid to do this race, gave me all kinds of rules I had to follow. I couldn't get in the bunch with the kids. I couldn't go into a corner first. I had to stay out on the outside of the bunch with the, um, they had like marshals that rode with the kids and yeah. And I thought, why am I paying to race? This isn't racing. I'm being a marshal really. Um, and so at the age of 50 to be told you have to race with the nine to 12 year olds was pretty demeaning. I must say, um, when I changed to St. Kilda, I made a phone call to the lady that ran the crits and I said, okay, can I ask, can I, can I ride in the crits? And she goes, yeah, why not? And I said, oh, do I have to ride with juniors? And she goes, of course not. We'll put you in the C grade women, which was the lowest grade that they had speed wise. And I was like, oh, okay, that's great. And, you know, since they've, I mean, they've been so inclusive. We've had hand cycles race. We've had tandems race, you know, myself racing. So, yeah, nothing's too hard for them. It's not about, um, it's not about that saying, 
oh, it's too hard. We can't do that. It's about, okay, let's find a way to make it happen. That's what St. Kilda is like. The similarities between St. Kilda Cycling Club and the Yarra Yarra Rowing Club, what was really the difference in allowing you or what, what had to be done to allow you to compete or race alongside anyone? Um, well, with Yara, it was, it was, you know, when I rocked up with, with a walking stick and stuff, it was more about them just saying, what do you, what do you need to, to get in the boat or get out of the boat? They asked the question of what can we do to help you do this better? And that was great. St. Kilda is the same. It's like, what can we do to make this happen? And it was also about educating the other riders within like the crit race. So at the start of every crit race, and we just had um, a, a couple of them not long ago, just around on, on the actual um, Formula One F, F1 track that was just held for the Mel- Melbourne Grand Prix. And so we did three crits there. And, and so at the start, it was just about me saying to all the girls, look, don't worry about how wide I am. Um, I know my width. I'll stay away from you guys. I'm not going to cause issues. You just keep your line and do what you're going to do. Um, and everybody just goes, oh, okay. You know, um, so it was just about letting me take part, even in the bunch rides during the week. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm smart enough to know that I'm not going to be, you know, doing rolling turns and sitting in the middle of a bunch when I'm like so wide at the back, 750 mils wide at the back. Mm. So on a bunch ride, I just sit at the back. I'm the gatekeeper. I, you know, let them know if there's cars passing or if they can pass something else. And, um, it's just about finding a way. And I think both clubs were more about, well, let's not say we can't do it. Let's say, let's find a way. Yeah. I think that's sort of the the thing for a lot of, a lot of clubs and a lot of sports is it's just that sort of misunderstanding as to what sort of needs to happen. And it's really, there's not a whole lot needs to happen. You don't need to recreate a new sport. You don't need to recreate anything it's just about getting people involved like exactly this, and it's like if there is something that you yeah can help and with, it's about asking it, it's not, not it's about not assuming what that person with a disability can or can't do it's about asking them um what do you need help with don't assume yeah. that somebody who is sitting in a wheelchair say if they went to a rowing club can't get on from the wheelchair into onto the ergo and do a, do an ergo session on on the machine don't assume they can't do that. Mm. You know, ask them if there's anything that they need help with to get there, but don't assume that they can't. And I think that's yeah. that's yeah. what people just look at others who might be living with a disability and think, oh, well, I'm not going to even ask them because they won't be able to do that. It's funny um, with my involvement at the Suncoast Spinners as the, the coach on the Wednesday night programs, we get we get all sorts of people walking in. And recently, I think it was about a month ago, we, ha- uh, we had this lady walk in. She suffered a stroke a, f- a fair while ago. And so she had complete no use of her, le- uh, I believe it was the left-hand side of her, her body. And she's come in and she's, she's been in a wheelchair before, but it was a single drive. It was like a, um, I think it was, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but it was, she would push on with her right hand and it would push the left wheel oh, as well. Okay. And then she would steer with something uh, in, in front, um, from my understanding of it. And so they sort of came along and they were like, you know, do you have any, do you have any chairs for anyone with, with one arm? And I was like, I mean, you just jump in and you know, push with the one arm, right? And they were like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you would push on the right wheel and then you push on the left wheel and you would start going forward at some point. <laughs> like, and they were like, are you, are you going to help? And I was like, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you can figure it out, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, give, give it a crack. And if you need a hand and I'll, I'll help you out. But for the most part, you're just going to sit in the chair and, and I'm a big fan of experiential learning. So maybe sometimes I get 
I come across as a bit of a blase kind of guy or not so helpful. But at some point, you're gonna you're gonna figure it out, and you, you you're only gonna do it by by giving it a crack. And yeah, exactly. so she's jumped in, and and she's she's been coming back every week. She's oh, loving it. You know, she's, she's out there. You know, sure, she's not as as fast as some of the, the young whippersnappers pushing out there, but she's out there. She's enjoying it, and she's in an environment where she's able to play, be herself, and be able to connect with others. I think that's the best part yeah, about it. Yeah, exactly. And look, it might not even be that she's not as fast because of her disability. It might just be because she's older. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. we, we always tend <laughs> to blame knows, the disability. She was twenty years younger. Yeah, we always tend to blame the disability, but. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's because we're all getting a bit long in the tooth. The Take a Seat podcast is in your ears thanks to the Suncoast Spinners. The Suncoast Spinners are a wheelchair-based sporting club. They run social inclusion programs, including but not limited to basketball and rugby. If you want to get involved with the Suncoast Spinners programs, you can just rock up at Mergen, Morayfield and Sippy Downs on Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays or contact them on Instagram, Facebook or their website www.suncoastspinners.com.au. The Suncoast Spinners programs are for people of all ages and abilities. They're looking for players, officials and volunteers to help with all of their programs. So make sure you check out the Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram or on their website again, www.suncoastspinners.com.au. Did someone push you into the first competition or did you kind of Google it? Was it the writing club? Um, how did you yeah. actually compete in your first tournament? It, that was that's quite funny because I was still rowing and we were having some we were having some issues with rowing Australia with the crew that I rowed in. So my category was in a in a four, so a coxed four, which when there were two men and two women, and the other the other woman in the boat, um, Alex um, Green was her name back then. She's Alex Lisney now. She lived in Sydney and. I had had a trike built here in Melbourne. It was a it was a big steel frame, twenty two kilo trike, full frame trike that this guy had built for me, so I could ride back and forth to rowing training. And funny enough, when we were having issues with rowing Australia, um, they didn't really want our to deal with our crew. They didn't want to worry about a four. I was still fighting them about that. And Alex gave me a call and she's, cause she had switched to cycling. Somebody had asked her to try track cycling. Um, she had cerebral, she has cerebral palsy. And so she called me and she goes, Carol, there's a trike category at the Paralympics. I said, what? She goes, yeah, there's a trike category. She said, you should come up to nationals in April and do the road race and the time trial. And I kind of laughed and I said, Alex, I know nothing about racing bikes. She goes, so just come up and ride them. Like just, just do the race. And I was like, okay. So he, me and my 22 kilo steel frame trike went up to Queensland. <laughs> Funny enough, Qantas wouldn't fly it because I had no, I had no bike bag or bike box I could put it in. It was a full frame. Like you couldn't, you couldn't take the back end off. So I'm thinking, how am I going to get my trike up? to Queensland. So I had a friend in the garment industry who had a truck going to Queensland. So my husband made this corrugated box. We stuck my trike in it. The truck drove it up to Queensland. It took four days to get there, dropped it off at the hotel I was staying in. And then at the end of it all, picked it up and took it back to Melbourne, which was you know quite hilarious. And I got that done for free, which was great because of my friend. Um, but I got up to Queensland and I remember the um the road race was around the glasshouse mountains and 
Alex and I drove around them and I just looked at her and I said, oh, this is going to be so embarrassing when I have to get off this heavy trike and walk up these hills. And she was like, don't worry, I'm on two wheels. I might be doing the same thing. Um, and that was, that was my first foray. My trike didn't meet any of the specifications that it needed to for a proper race, like for the commissaires to actually let you race. So there's rules within the UCI, the head of all the cycling around the world that on a trike, you must have a brake on every single wheel. And I didn't have that. I just had a drum brake in the middle. So for the time trial, they let it go. But you also need a safety bar at the back of the trike that comes at just a little bit out from the two back wheels and goes across so that nobody can come in between the two back wheels. And I didn't have that. So I wasn't going to be allowed to do the road race until I had that done. And I found, I found a welder for crying out loud in, in, um, in just outside of Brisbane. And he welded on a safety bar. It was hilarious. So it made the trike even heavier. (laughs) And we were able to weld on. They wouldn't let me do the, they let me go on the time trial with what I had, but the road race, I needed to work out brakes for the back wheels. So he welded on another piece of steel across the top and we put caliper brakes on the wheels so that I actually had some brakes. So I did that in like a matter of two days. It was just ridiculous. But I did the time trial the first day and I just rode, I just jumped on and, you know, went out and back and the head coach came up to me. His name was Peter Day at the time. And, and he says, Oh my God, where did you come from? And I looked at him and I said, Melbourne. <laughs> he goes, no, no, no. I mean, in the world of cycling. And I said, Oh no, I'm a rower. I'm a rower. I'm just here to have a bit of fun. And he looks at me and he goes, no, 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 you're a cyclist. He said, you just smashed the qualifying speed for the national team for the WT2s. And I looked at him and I went, oh, what was that? And he went, you don't even know what the time is. And I said, or the speed is. I said, no, I know nothing about cycling. And so he told me what it was and, and he just shook his head. He goes, I need to talk to your coach. And I just stood there looking at him and I said, well, keep talking then because I'm it. I've got a rowing coach, but I'm it for cycling. And he just shook his head and said, we need to find you somebody to coach you. And, and so, yeah, I made the team after my very first race um, because of the, the speed that I'd gone. And we had the f- two months later, we had the first ever World Cup in the Southern Hemisphere um, in Sydney. And the rest of the world came and, and I won both the races for the women. And I remember standing the last day because I drove up there and I remember standing the last day. Um, at the hotel, getting a cup of coffee. And Peter looked at me and he said, so are you a rower or are you a cyclist? (laughs) And I just looked at him and I went, I guess I'm a cyclist. And that was the start. At that point, between that first tournament and what happened there, uh, did you get a new bike or was it still the same bike? Uh, You know, what what process happened between between that first race and then that championships? Yeah, well, funny enough, um, I made the, after that World Cup. I was still on the heavy one, on the on the twenty two kilo steel frame one, and I called it my red rocket. And <laughs> I ended up, <laughs> I ended up getting a bag, a bike bag made for it by a company up in Sydney called Bigfoot. And I gave him the the measurements and stuff. He made this. They made this great bag, bike bag. And I I made my first World Championship team in two thousand eleven, which was a couple months later. And so you know, we put the bike in this bag. 
and the team paid for it to to fly to Denmark. And so I raced against the rest of the world on this huge heavy bike. And I and I at my first world championships, I just expected that I would win because Peter had said he's the that I was the fastest woman he'd seen in the world. Except they told the Canadian that she was too. And she was, mm-hmm. she beat me very handily, but she was on a 15 kilo bike. And I thought, okay, I need a new bike. And after those world champs, Peter actually sat down with me and he said, look, if you come back fitter and stronger, he said, uh, I'll build you a bike. And he was true to his word, but I was true to my word. I, I lost, I dropped like 15 kilos in the next three months. Um, and I ran into him watching um, the paracycling on the track here at, at, uh, in Melbourne. And I walked up to him and he just looked, he didn't even recognize me. He looked at me, he goes, oh God, what have you done? I said, well, I've come back stronger and fitter. That was December of 2011. And in March of 2012, we had a camp and he presented me with, um, yeah, with a new trike. How much does your new bike weigh now? Like what is your current bike that you're racing on? What is the weight of it? Um, the one I raced on in Tokyo now is 12 kilos. So you dropped 10 so, kilos off you your dropped, bike. Yeah. Half a bike. But the one I have now is like so schmick and like expensive. So it's all carbon and titanium. The back end, the axles are all carbon and titanium. It was specifically built, uh, for Tokyo. It's a, it's a pretty cool looking bike. I've, I've seen it on, uh, on, online, some of the articles looking at, give it, give it a geese if you've, if you've got, 30 seconds, check it out. Um, Carol Cook's tricycle. It's, it's a really smick looking bike. It is true to its word, as close as possible to any sort of racing bike that you would look at from any of the top tier riders. The, um, the front end, yeah. the front end of, of both the road, the road frame and the time trial frame are both Argons, which funny enough are Canadian made, which I think suit me well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's great because on, on each of the frames, there's this little Canadian flag which is amazing. So I feel like it was, it was, a, it was meant to be. Mm. Um, but yeah, the back end that was, we did a lot of research um, into how to lessen the weight of the back end because most of the trikes are all steel. They're steel frame with steel um, axles in them. And so how do we get rid of that weight um, to make it even better? and faster to ride. And it was a company called Bastion here in Melbourne who, um, God, it took, they probably did about nine months worth of research and design and looking at how to not only make it lighter, but more aero. So I have a, a friend who is a aero specialist or was the aero specialist for Ferrari. Um, he lived in Switzerland. He's now in the UK. And, um, so he, he's Australian and he was actually here and he looked at my trike and he said, this is how we can, this is how you can make it more arrow. And it was more like, instead of having, um, round stays at the back, uh, and round everything to, to make it teardropped. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Bastion actually did that. So they made everything like a teardrop form, um, to make it more arrow as well, because it's pretty hard to make a trike arrow <laughs> with the two back wheels. Yes, that's um, cool. So we did some we did some testing in the um, Monash uh, University wind tunnel, which was pretty cool actually, sitting in that wind tunnel. And they made a special um, platform for my trike. And um, yeah, we looked at the arrowness of of this was before I got the teardrop with of the bike. Um, 
and my position on the bike. And they, they told me that my trike before the aeroness was like double, um, double that of a, of a, a single bike, you know, I get hit doubly hard. So tear dropping everything really brought that down, which was, which was great to have people involved in doing that. It wasn't like I had to pay for it. They believed in my ability enough that, you know, Paralympics Australia, Cycling Australia, and um, the Victorian Institute of Sport all put money in to um, look at building that. So needless to say, it's well insured. <laughs> yeah, 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 it would be. It's incredible to hear you had a, had a lot of support and, and uh, backing to get the science behind building this almost spacecraft-looking trike. And it's, and it's paying off, obviously. Well, I mean, it did take, it did take like, you know, I, I rode just a normal bike, like the normal trike, like everybody else in London and in Rio. And it was just, it was done specifically for Tokyo. Mm. So, um, because they did that with mine, our other trike rider, our male trike rider in, in Sydney, um, Stu Jones, they, they actually made him one as well because they worked out how much better it was. We're going to move now into our hard cards. So if you've heard before, towards the back end of the episode, we have a couple cards here. And so they're questions from online, they're questions from viewers, they're questions from ourselves that we just simply wouldn't feel comfortable or perhaps listeners wouldn't feel comfortable asking someone with a disability in the community. You know, you just wouldn't walk up to someone and say, I'll ask one of these questions, for example. So we are going to do this a bit differently because we are doing this via a audio chat. So we're not in person today. Um, so I'm going to fan out the cards. Cameron is going to select three cards. Uh, so they'll be like the, the questions will be face down. So Cameron can't see what they are. Uh, we'll then read them out for you and feel free to answer one, two, three, or none if you would like. Okay. <laughs> um, and we'll see where, see where we end up. So I'm going to shuffle around, fan them out for you or for Cameron and he's going to pick out. So James just started fanning them out for me. Um, any kind of, numbers or anything on a standard playing deck that you'd like Harold in particular before I start just randomly picking something here oh no that's all right I'm well, easy just randomly do it well we see what happens I, well, I would we, say that you're the queen of the of the track so I'm gonna go a queen of diamonds here and then uh you race for Australia so I'm gonna pick the happens to be ace of diamonds and what, what was it was it nine go to the go to go to the dark side dark side <laughs> Well, we've got nine nine world championships, or what was it? Nine. Yep. Nine world championships. Nine of clubs, maybe. Nine, that's exactly that's what we have. <laughs> Literally, what we pulled out. So I'm going to read out all three questions for you, and then pick whichever one you want to answer. If you don't want to answer any, you let us know. Um, but I'll read all three first off for you. Do you, okay. Do you avoid asking for help? Is question one. Question two. What is the one thing you want to change about yourself? And the third question is, what is most commonly asked about you? Okay. Uh, let's go with number. Can you read number one? I'll answer all three of them. That's that's easy. Yep. So can you read number one again? So question number one was, do you avoid asking for help? In years gone by? Yes, always. I, I Even as a kid, I'm so independently stubborn, as my mother would say. No, my mother would say I'm pig-headed and stubborn. I like to think of it as independence, but I have since realized that, and, I, and it's still hard for me to ask for help, but I've realized that um, the older I've gotten that that's dumb. You know, if something is really, really tough and, and I need somebody to assist me with it, 
then yeah, I do ask now. I still find it hard because of my stubbornness and my independence. <laughs> so if we're to reword that in a sporting sense, do you avoid asking for help in any sense of now you're paracycling or any other sporting that you are doing at the moment? Um, no, especially especially with cycling and my trike. I try to be as independent as I can, like especially when you have to pull it apart and pack it um, and you get to your destination. And I know there's other cyclists who need the mechanics to help them um, more than me. So I'll do as much as I can, but if there's something I just can't do, because sometimes my hands just don't work properly, um, then I will ask for help. Um, yeah, I, I'm not, uh, before I would never, ever, you know, I'd struggle and I'd get pissed off about not being able to do something. Um, now I just go, yeah, can't tighten that. So you guys are going to have to do it. So no, I'm, you know, with, with my sport, I'm quite happy to ask for help. So question number two. What is the one thing you want to change about yourself? You know, I guess it's funny. I guess people always are hard on themselves. We're, we're always a lot harder on ourselves than, than other people are. And I used to, growing up, you know, uh, especially as an athlete, you'd look at somebody else and, and think, oh, I want to lose 10 kilos or I want to be like that person or whatnot. I think now that um, I like to say I turned 20 for the third time last year. Um, so it hasn't made me older. It's just made me wiser. And, um, there's not a lot that I, yeah, there's not a lot that I would want to change about me. Um, the one thing is that, um, (laughs) I can procrastinate quite a bit and yeah, I'd like to change the fact that I put things off. It's called a monkey brain. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard about it. We all have a monkey brain. You know, you sit down to do something and then something distracts you and you get involved in something else and then something else distracts you or you got on, get on to look at bloody Facebook or something. And then that original thing that you were doing just gets left behind. So um, I'd like to procrastinate just a little bit less, I guess. It's uh, funny that you should say that you've turned 20 for three times for Paris 2024. So my understanding is that you are going to try and compete at Paris 2024. Um, how old will you be at Paris 2024? Well, look, I never set my sights that far ahead. Um, everybody else keeps telling me that I'm going for it, (laughs) which is quite funny. And after Tokyo, when I crashed in the road race, it kind of left, um, some unfinished business there. So in Tokyo, Tokyo, I would be 63, but what I do every year is I just set my goals for that year. I get through that year and then I see, you know, well, okay, am I, am I going to progress and go into the next year? Um, I've always said that I don't ride and I don't train to make a team. I do it because I love it. And I think anybody who gets into sport, don't do it because somebody's telling you to do it or somebody's saying, oh yeah, you can make this team. Do it because you love it because then it's not a chore. I don't mind getting up at four o'clock in the morning and being on the bike at five to go meet a bunch of people to ride, you know, because I love it. And it's, to me, it's not motivation that's needed. It's just commitment to doing what I enjoy. So yeah, 63. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. (laughs) The uh, last question here from the cars that we have is what is the most commonly asked about you? 
funny enough, it's, um, well, there's two, two things. One, people that I, I don't know, funny enough, I'll be walking down the street or I'll be somewhere, you know, whether it's at a coffee or the other day I was having a test um, at a hospital and on, on my hand and, and the professor doing it just didn't know my background, um, you know, like my health background. And you walk with a walking stick and invariably everybody says, what'd you do to your knee? And it's like, I didn't do anything to my knee. Thanks. It's to stop me from falling over, you know, like a drunk. Mm. Um, so that is from most people that I don't know. What did you do to your knee? And from people that I know, it's like, when are you going to retire? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And I just look at people <laughs> and I say, well, I guess the day that they close the pine box lid is when I'll retire. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I don't, I don't ride to make a team. I just happen to be good enough to make those teams. And the day that I wake up in the morning and I'm not enjoying my riding is the day I won't ride, you know, and I'll probably do something else. But <laughs> for now, I love it. And it's, it's my social outlet, um, heaps of friends that I ride with. And yeah, I can't think of anything better than on a nice morning to go for a ride. Yeah, that's such a great, a great message to, to end on. You know, that doctor who gave me my diagnosis and said that my life as I knew it was over he was very right. My life as I knew it was over. Um, it's just that he was thinking in a negative way. And I like to spin that around and think in a positive way, because to be honest, I would never change. He, he probably giving me my diagnosis the way he did was like waving a red flag to a bull. Um, because I was bound to determine that MS was not going to define who I was, um, that it was just going to be part of my life. And yeah, I would not change the fact that I was diagnosed with MS for any amount of money in the world because it's made me who I am and given me opportunities that I never, ever would have had. So. Thanks for listening to this episode. We appreciate you rating and reviewing the podcast, but most importantly, sharing it with people you think it will impact the most. Before we go, again, a massive thanks to our sponsor, the Sunco Spinners. The Sunco Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby, and more. Follow the Sunco Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, and find out more about them at suncospinners.com.au. 